Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The KV Pod. I'm your host, Daniel, and this is episode 15. I got to say, I am extremely excited for this episode. This is a conversation I've been planning for several weeks at this point, and I'm so glad we finally got to make it happen. On this episode, I have one of my dearest friends, Carly Wallace, on the show, and we get to discuss some of our experiences as educators. Now, as a bit of background, Carly and I both attended Truman State University, and we actually both completed the same master's in education program there, her for high school English and me for high school chemistry. And yet, while we both attended the same university, completed the same master's program, and both share a deep passion for education, our careers have taken drastically different paths. And I believe our conversation today sheds light on some of the broader trends we're seeing in education today. For one, we talk about why so many teachers are leaving education altogether, and why some educators are not. We also get into why reading and writing are some of the most important skills that students can develop. Yes, even for students in a science class like mine. Without a doubt, this was a fascinating conversation, and I hope this is the first of many appearances that Carly will make on the KV Pod. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank everyone who is subscribed to the podcast for doing so. If you're not subscribed, please consider doing it. And while you're at it, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. We really appreciate the feedback. Also, don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok. We'd love to interact with you guys on those platforms. Uh, but without further ado, let's get into the show. Well, great. Hello, Carly. Hello. How are you? I'm doing so well. Uh, working on the technology stuff over here. This is only the second FaceTime episode that I've done on the podcast. So uh, trying to make it work. Uh, we'll see if I can eliminate as much static as possible <laughs> once I edit this. But uh, how are you? I'm great. You are doing your second FaceTime podcast. I'm doing my first ever podcast. So Well, congratulations. Um Hopefully this will go on to be a momentous occasion that many people will get to listen to this conversation. <laughs> That's the goal. Yeah. So the the whole reason I wanted to have you on here is because you and I are both uh, passionate about education. Obviously, I'm a teacher and we both attended Truman State for their education program. Yes. And we have education in education, degrees in education, if I can say it that way. And one thing that I want this podcast to partially be, I mean, we talk about lots of different things, but one thing that I want it to partially be is conversations that teachers have with each other about education. And so you and I are close friends um, and we have had time at in college talking about education and working for Upward Bound, which maybe we can get into, um, which has been part of our educational development. And so I just wanted to have you on as the first person that I can talk to who is trained as an educator that I can talk to about education. So I'm super excited for this. Yeah, I think that we have like a unique, like crazy bunch of similarities, like educated in the same program, at the same college, worked for the same education program like both 
in similar, I don't know, places, like in terms of our career. I mean, we'll get into the differences there. Right, exactly. Yeah, for but sure. I think it's a cool continuation of a conversation we were having, having when we were at Truman. Yeah. Yeah. And so not to spoil too much, but we have a very similar beginnings to our educational journeys. And then where we are now is very different in some ways. And so that's kind of what I what I want to talk about. But I think what I want to start with is I I am curious to hear your story of what going through Truman's Masters of Arts in Education program looks like, because I went through it as a pre high school science teacher, whereas you went through it as a pre-high school English teacher. And while there are, I'm sure there's lots of overlap in our experiences, obviously in the professors and the courses that we took, um, there's definitely some differences. And I think I uh, am curious to hear, kind of delve into that. I don't think I've talked to you about this off the air at all. Yeah. Um, So I guess just starting off, can you just give kind of a background of the course, some of the courses you took, uh, maybe talk about your undergrad a little bit and uh, where what your training has been like leading up to this point. Yes. So I have my bachelor's degree in English and knew I was going to Truman for the five-year master's program. So um, it felt like all five years there was some education thrown in there, obviously. And then that last year was fully in the master's program. Um, I would say a couple things to describe my experience. First of all, I'm super thankful for Truman for a thousand reasons, and I really enjoyed my time in the education program. Yeah, same for me. Yeah, I thought a lot of things about it were super, super well run. I felt like the people were great. Um, I really loved my cohort. By the end, it was a pretty tight-knit group. I'm sure you felt the same way, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um I just, there were nine of us and I knew exactly what they were going through. We'd been in so many classes together by that point. I felt like we were truly friends. There was trust among professors. So I want to start off saying all the good things. Um, And I will follow that up with my, my one thing that I kind of wish that I had realized sooner. And that is, it was pretty idealistic. (laughs) Okay. We did a lot of talking about like my, my two favorite classes when I think back on them were full full level, level master's classes. It was theory and practice of teaching writing and then theory and practice of teaching reading. And these were like highly academic courses. I felt very challenged. I loved the conversations that were happening in those rooms. But looking back on it, I actually, in my time in the classroom, the actual classroom, never got to the point where I could use any of the things I learned in those two core classes. Interesting. They were so... They, they were conversations about what would happen in the ideal classroom environment. So um, there was not a lot of talk about building up to like, how can you get to that point? Hmm. Or what if you have the ideal classroom environment? Um, so I, I did feel like, wow, those were some great, I learned some great things, but I don't know if I'll ever actually be able to apply them in the real world. <laughs> okay, interesting. So what, what, so I guess if we're starting with the ideal stuff, what were some of the things you guys talked about? So, Obviously, English teacher, a big concern of yours is how do I teach high schoolers to write? Were you talking about yeah. s- stuff along those lines and, and what that looks like? Yeah, so we went through tons of different um, curriculum options for getting students to write every day, um, creative writing versus like writing across curriculum, which is something that I think you're trying to do in your classroom, Daniel. For sure. And so many amazing ideas and conversations, like I said, were had. Um, And we would, you know, play student and teacher in these scenarios and 
of course, it all worked perfectly in the the fake teaching world. (laughs) And I just, I felt like none of that addressed the fact that kids oftentimes hate writing Hmm. or it's hard to get them to just put a pen to paper or um, produce anything at all. Um, And so it was like we were assuming that students want to learn how to write, Hmm. (laughs) which I think was a pretty bad assumption um, to go in with. Same with the reading, honestly. It was really, really great techniques for engaging students with text and engaging students with writing. But I felt really underprepared to just get students to the point where I'd be able to use any of those cool tactics. I didn't have a lot of buy-in, I guess is the... A good way to sure, put it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm, yeah. So if I'm trying to think back to my experience and you, I guess with the, the program that we went through, you don't really get into conversations that are specific to your content area until like way at the end of the program, because toward the beginning and even through the middle of the program, you're just learning about education in general and, you know, dealing with mm-hmm. disabilities, uh, dealing with, um, the psychology of learning and how to write good assessments and kind of things that apply to everyone. It's not the content specific stuff doesn't come till later. Um, Mm -hmm. When I was in, I guess it was my, my STEM 608 class is like the, the Truman code for that class where we're talking about teaching science specifically. We had one thing that Dr. Pereja did is we had conversation about motivation and what is motivation. And of course there's the classic intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation and all of that stuff. Were those conversations that were happening in those theory and writing classes? You know, to a certain extent, I mean, it was definitely acknowledged that a lot of students don't enjoy writing and dread it in fact. Yeah. And we, so we talked about that, but it still felt like we made a pretty quick jump to, okay, you got your students writing, now what? Mm, Okay. And, you know, maybe that, I don't know, looking back on it, I still, I don't necessarily blame my professors or the program for that necessarily, Um, because why wouldn't you want to assume the best about the classroom you're going to end up being in and the students you're going to end up having? Um, And I'm sure that some of my fellow cohort members would not have the same thing to say at all because they, they are in a district maybe where, uh, motivation and buy-in isn't as much of a problem. Hmm, okay. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, um, why why do you think students were not interested? So you've so you've long-term subbed up to this point. Um, I feel like we might end up having this conversation backwards from from what I planned, but I think that'll be totally fine. Um, That's fine. <laughs> um, why are students not interested in writing? Um, what are your thoughts on that? And I'll, I have some thoughts to jump in because I experienced a similar thing on the science end. And I think this can open yeah. up interesting conversation about students' interests and motivation, things like that. But what did you experience on your end? So, I mean, I am laughing at myself because this is like such an edgy and a specifically Truman student thing to say. But on Bloom's taxonomy. There you go. <laughs> I love Bloom's taxonomy. It, yeah. <laughs> I did, it's pretty high up there. Like, okay. Even you are starting with something super basic, you're still asking students to create something new out of the concept of their own mind. Um, and I think there's a lot of shame associated with writing, actually. Interesting, um, okay. And now it's there and people can read it. Um, I think there are also a lot of barriers, whether real or imagined, to students writing. Um, like, it might be more fundamentals. Like, they are, they have some worries or shame associated with you know, their spelling or their grammar. Um, But I think more of what it is, is 
it's a vulnerable act. Even if you are writing um, something that's not about yourself or something, you're writing down a process, it's still, I think, a vulnerable act to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and produce something um, when a lot of what we're asking students to do is not actually creative in nature. They're creating something. Um, and so I think there's a lot of worry about the vulnerability aspect of it. Interesting. So in, you're saying in the act of writing, I am putting, I could say I'm putting a piece of myself in this essay or story or poem that I'm writing and there's a level <laughs> of worry or vulnerability that that is happening there. Um, yeah, and you mentioned blooms. At, you know, at the top of blooms, you know, you're talking about synthesis or creating something. At the top of blooms is where cognitive difficulty is at its height. <laughs> and one thing that uh, we find out very quickly, or I guess we're, I guess we've already known this all our lives uh, because we were students and we are humans, just like our students are humans. But it mm -hmm. just kind of slaps you across the face when you get in the classroom. Is that People don't like to do hard things. Uh, true. So, <laughs> and that's and writing hardest things. I think, like, in terms of, I, I don't want to say it's it's hard to comment on like the difficulty of subject areas and every student's okay, brain sure. works. But I do think um, a lot of students would say that English is the subject that's most difficult to them, hmm. and I do think it's because we're asking them to do hard things, like. Even just closely reading a text, students are like, shoot, this is a lot of work. Yeah. Like, I can't kind of half pay attention, um, you know, answer some problems that are in front of me. I, like, have to have my mind really turned on and invested in a way um, that I might not be used to in other parts of my life. Um, I think we're also struggling cross-content area, but maybe in English specifically with just attention span. <laughs> Fair enough, yes. And you know, buy in for a longer period of time than it might take to just solve a one-off problem or, you know, something of that nature. So there's a lot of challenges that are kind of colliding in the English classroom. Yeah, for sure. And and that's definitely something I've seen. I mean, I'm still a young teacher. I'm only in my third year teaching. But one thing that becomes apparent very quickly is that any kind of cognitive challenge is a turnoff to many people. And, and, and I think this, I mean, I think this just applies to any person. If something is challenging, our natural tendency is to avoid it or try to circumvent it or find a shortcut or something of like, how can I yeah. put in the least amount of effort for the most, you know, output. So whether it's an assignment or even at our jobs, I think adults are, are, are the same. And so yeah. as a science teacher, you know, whether it's chemistry teaching upper level students or physical science teaching freshmen in high school, you know, I can come up with this really cool lab of like, okay, I'm going to like make it a puzzle and it's going to be like an experiment and I'm not going to tell them what the answer should be. They're going to have to discover and figure it out. And like, it's, it's like this masterful thing that I've put together and it's like all going to come together at the end and they're going to be invested and there's going to be this big aha moment and we're going to have these like life-altering class discussions in and, there and you five minutes ago <laughs> yeah and then it's just like they show up and they're like i don't want to do this or like yeah yeah oh and i'm like gosh. what's you don't want to do it i've spent hours preparing this lesson and it's just it's I, it's I, co comically frustrating <laughs> i have to interject a story here because yeah go for one it of, that is so relatable i think to so many teachers um one of the one of the last things that I did before spoiler alert leaving the classroom uh -oh. um, was 
I did a lesson that I put so much extra effort into. I was so excited about it. Um, I was going to be teaching my students, speaking of writing, how to sketch note, which is a technique I learned at Truman, okay. which is students can combine visuals with their writing and it can encode what they're learning two different ways in their brain. So there's a better chance that they will engage with the material in multiple ways and then remember it. Mm, okay, so um, they're getting words and then they're getting pictures. And so, yes. okay, so it'll stick a little better. Yes. Cool, I've and never so heard of that. That's cool. It, it's awesome. It w probably is really applicable to science and I could uh, I could give you some resources on it. Yeah, um, please do. But lesson that I had planned for it was we were going to start off the day by playing this really silly version of Pictionary just to get students comfortable like being bad at drawing and drawing something really quickly. Sure. And okay. so we were going to start with a fun game. Um, and then I had picked a bunch of really fun children's books and I was going to read them to them really animatedly and have them try to sketch note what happens in them. And they're you know, it was a really good scaffolding technique because these are stories kids are familiar with already. Um, so they could just practice the the written part of it plus the visual part of it. And it's also just this really fun, creative environment. Cool. Um, and I was so excited because this was also something that was part of my master's research. So I was like, woohoo! Um, and right. I had, like, gone out of the way to, like, grab these children's books and get this game. And seriously, like, I can't tell you how devastating it was to have right off the bat students this is dumb i hate this why are you doing this you know oh like, man what a letdown you have to get used to that as a high school teacher but like the other crazy thing about that day was that my principal was in the room observing and i had no idea he was going to be there that day oh, okay and so he actually saw me after that class was over and i was he could tell that i was pretty dejected and he tried to like pump me up because he was like that was great like even though like they complain, they're going to complain about anything. Um, and it, it was like a reminder to me, like, gosh, you can put in a whole lot of effort on the back end of these things and still not get that buy-in. Hmm. And it's hard. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. Th I, this is kind of opening up something I'm, I've been thinking about for a few years, just being a young teacher. And I think we'll continue to think about for a while is how to make my lessons or just the content that I'm teaching, how do I make science interesting or motivating to all students, which mm -hmm. may or may not be a realistic goal to even have. Um, and maybe there could be arguments for that. Well, science isn't interesting and won't be interesting to everyone. So why even try that hard? And I think there's something to that, but um, it just, yeah, it's, it's kind of also making me go back to even have, just questions of like, what is, <laughs> like, what is the purpose of education? Like, why, why am I a science teacher? Uh, like, why, why do these kids have to take physical science? Why do they need to learn about atoms? Why do they need to learn about electrons and, you know, Newton's three laws of motion and, and all of this stuff? And uh, I think, I don't know, on the one hand, I think you could argue that you know, well, and I like on the one hand, I have to admit, not all of my students are going to go on to be scientists or science teachers or work in a, even a science related career. And mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing. Like my goal as a teacher should not necessarily be to convince all students to go into science because there's more to our world and there's more to life. Even there's more, even more to my life. I'm a science teacher and there's more to my life than science. 
you know, <laughs> and, you know, I'm involved in music and sports and I love history and, you know, I, I use what I've learned in English and writing to some degree, you know, maybe not to the same extent as others, but it still mm -hmm. applies to my life. And so, um, yeah, just puzzling through, okay, I don't know if it's the information they need, but then you can make arguments that, well, okay, maybe in science class, we're learning how to think critically. You know, we're learning how to think critically and we're learning how to um, solve problems. We're learning how to work with other people and collaborate, um, be open-minded. And, you know, you can kind of get into a conversation about transferable skills and, and things like that, mm -hmm. which is enticing and sounds convincing. And then you're just, I just get deflated again. Cause then I go read a research article in some psychology magazine saying like, well, actually critical thinking in specific content domains doesn't transfer to other areas. <laughs> you know, I read articles like, you know, if you can think critically in, in math and you can solve equations and you can be creative in that domain, that mode of thinking doesn't transfer to other areas. That does not mean you can think critically in English class or in history or, or science. And so I'm like, ah, what's the point? I don't know. <laughs> it's just very interesting. Well, and so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, that's where I lean in on like functional academics. When I first heard that term, I knew I was going to fall in love with it immediately. Hmm. Um, okay. It especially is applicable to the English world. So many kids, I can't tell you how many kids think they're so funny when they're like, Mrs. Wallace, I already speak English. Why do I need to be here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I have that functional academics side of me that has a great answer to that question, hmm. which is like, I can tell you a thousand different ways how reading and writing is going to actually impact your life in the future. Um, especially close reading, being able to read a difficult text and decipher what it means. Like I'm thinking about like tax forms <laughs> and like there are just <laughs> okay, yeah. and, transferable skills to the real world with my subject area um and that's the reason I first by the way fell in love with the concept of being an English teacher I think it's really important um that kids can read and write successfully and right. it's gonna whatever career so I definitely in terms of the two-sided thing you were bringing up before um like why are we here <laughs> um is it so kids can learn about atoms is it so kids can learn about collaboration like or is it some middle ground with English class? I think really it is about those transferable skills to the real world. Mm, At okay. least that's what I was leaning on and yeah. still am leaning. Yeah. 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 It opens up. Yeah. And honestly, that is kind of a direction I'm starting to head with my teaching practice too. And I've, I've kind of told you bits about this, but I'll just mention it since we're, since we're on the podcast now of like, I am looking for ways to even teach reading and writing in my science classes. Um, mm -hmm. I My first year of teaching was at Smith Cotton High School in Sedalia, Missouri. And in one of our professional development meetings, I was exposed to a curriculum called the Writing Revolution. And I don't know how well known this curriculum is or how many people use it per se, but the premise, excuse me, the premise of this curriculum is that reading and writing, the ability to read and write um, correlates directly with your ability to under, understand the concepts in a certain subject. 
So if you can read and write about chemistry really well, or the better you can read and write about chemistry, the better you can understand it. Yes. Which is very mm -hmm. interesting. And, and as I begin to think about that, I totally drank the Kool-Aid <laughs> on this, on this thing, because that completely aligns with exactly, um, with how I have been moving through chemistry and learning about chemistry myself as an undergrad. And, you know, I took a few graduate chemistry courses. Um, a huge part of understanding it is just learning how to talk about it and learning how to read it and write it, you know? And, yep. and so even so, the, and, and I haven't fully incorporated this curriculum into uh, my classes yet, but that's kind of one of my summer projects that I want to work on so that I can start doing that this fall. But even even recently, so I don't know how much this will mean to you, but I'll just I'll just try to use this as an example. So we're talking about solubility in chemistry this last month. You know how well certain substances will dissolve in water. Okay, so some substances dissolve very well, some of them don't, and there are all of these content specific vocabulary words that go into describing that process. There are nouns and verbs and adjectives that go into how we talk about substances dissolving in other substances that literally on one of my worksheets, I give them four of those words and I say, write a true statement about this chemical using these words, trying to force them to learn how to say that a compound that is insoluble will precipitate it will not be aqueous. You know, a compound that is aqueous is soluble and therefore it will not precipitate. So learning aqueous, insoluble, soluble, precipitate. And like, yeah. just so just down to the point of understanding the definitions of the words and how to apply them in a sentence. If you can write mm -hmm. that sentence, I think by definition, you have to understand the concepts. Yes, uh, I am being flashback to my <laughs> high school which I had an incredible high school chemistry teacher, by the way. Um, she had so many, like, long answer problems on her tests. Interesting. And forced you to really know your stuff. Like, she would ask you to describe a process. And I would write a whole darn paragraph. And you figure out very quickly in that process whether or not you know what you're talking about or not. Yeah. It's not matching. It's not multiple choice. Like, I and I, I personally loved it because um, I, I liked writing, obviously. Yeah. Um, but that was actually really, um, it was really empowering to me as a student who didn't think that science was my thing. I'm using air quotes. Yeah. Um, but to be able to kind of like, double wield like my like English ideas and English brain with like oh this newfound science knowledge was super super empowering to me as a student and I remember thinking that was the first science class I enjoyed and it was because I could like confidently express myself with writing mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I think another way that this manifests itself in the classroom is just just the discussions I have with students of that a student who really understands the concepts and maybe just has kind of a clarifying question for me will be like, Hey, Mr. Floyd, like, is this how I write this chemical formula and like the charges and, you know, neutral, like, is this neutral? Does like this polyatomic ion, is this me? Like they will comfortably speak the language and ask me a question in that domain. Talk. Yeah. Whereas someone who is struggling will say uh, like, Mr. Floyd, does this do this? Or like, so this is going to go down, right? 
as a you know as opposed to you know the I don't know the energy will decrease you know just I'm struggling to find examples but even just the way that students talk about it you can tell how to some degree how much they're getting it or how much they understand it based on their ability to speak it um, yes. and so I think if okay and so if I want my students to understand chemistry paired right into that is I need to I need to figure out how to teach them to speak chemistry and write about it um, mm -hmm. and then ideally read it because then if you can read now you know it's kind of the analogy of like instead of just giving a man a fish you're teaching him to fish if I can read this stuff now I can go off on my own and, mm -hmm. and gather more and understand more without needing to be spoon-fed by a teacher as much and so exactly. um, yeah very very interesting how um, yeah, reading and writing, I think, is one of those transferable skills, I guess, if we can call it that, mm -hmm. that r applies to every content area. And I've even, I don't know, I'm just kind of going on a tangent here of like, even in math class, like, if I were to ask, I don't know, I bet you I could ask, I might do this this week, I will go find some calculus students, I have some calculus students in my chemistry classes, if I ask them, what's the difference between a mathematical expression versus a mathematical equation versus a mathematical function? Mm-hmm. And, you know, on paper, an equation and a function can look the same, but yeah, the, the difference in those definitions and those concepts um, is, is very different. And so being able to articulate that um, yeah. demonstrates depth of understanding. So Yes. Yep. So even in a math class, we can have, you know, you could have a paragraph <laughs> on the test or a paragraph, you know, essay sort of question of like, okay, explain the difference between these two concepts. Yeah. Well, and it all goes back to that thing that we all are taught as, like, blooming teachers, which that if you can teach it, that is proof that you really know it inside yes. and out. Yeah, for sure. And Yeah, I mean, it connects right in, like, if you can truly talk the talk and, like, manipulate difficult vocabulary to express a point, like, that's when you've really reached that higher level of understanding. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And speaking of theory of teaching in an ideal classroom, I think in an ideal classroom, there would be opportunities for students to teach the material somehow, whether it's teaching other or tutoring other students um, in a way, because then that's pushing them to understand it themselves. If they can then turn around and somehow deliver it to another person who who is learning it. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Um so let's just go ahead and jump into, I think, the big elephant in the room that you and I are aware of, but maybe the listeners aren't, is that you, so we, we both left Truman and I am teaching in Missouri and you are in Iowa currently. Yes. And um, I am currently teaching and you are currently not teaching. Um, and so this, this can open a whole can of worms because one of the things that, that you and I are both observing in the educational and just a lot of people are observing and something that's happening in our country is a lot of teachers are leaving education, Yep. um, which is unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and right now on the podcast, we have one who has done just that. And so one thing that I also wanted to talk to you about is, um, your experience with that. Um, I remember I just found out about this a couple weeks ago when, you know, Shalene and I were talking to you and Grant, um, and you mentioned like, yeah, I am not teaching and I am working another job. And I just felt like my heart sank into my stomach. I was like, no, 
not Carly, <laughs> anyone but Carly, because like, like it's one thing for me to be on Twitter and, you know, seeing the tweets and, you know, people being like, I, I've been in education for so long and I'm leaving. And then another person who's not in education just being like, why are all the teachers leaving? And it's like, it's one thing for it to be impersonal along those lines. But then for something, someone I know personally, who's a, a close friend of mine that I went to school with to also mm-hmm. go down that path, uh, I think was jarring for me. And, you know, Mm-hmm. That's me, and I'm not even the one who went through it. So, yeah. I, I can only imagine uh, what that process looked like for you. But I'd I'd be very interested to hear your story and and how that played out. So I don't know if you can give us kind of an overview of leaving Truman and going into you taught for a little yeah. bit, and then mm-hmm. how you ended up where you are now. Yes, um, I won't go too crazy long with this. I could probably talk forever about it. I mean, it was a huge. I shouldn't, I shouldn't undersell it. It was a huge, huge decision I made. It's, yeah. Um, but I'll give you the overview. Yeah. Um, so after I had uh, finished my master's degree, um, I knew that Grant and I were going to be moving to Iowa. So there was the problem of like, I'm not going to be a fully licensed teacher because I need to go to this new state, take all these new tests. We're moving in the summer. It's just not going to happen. Sure. Okay. Um, so I was doing a lot of um, long-term subbing, which was awesome. I did get really lucky. I had three different three-month-long assignments in high school English classes. Hmm. The tr- about high school English teachers having a lot of babies is totally true. <laughs> uh, I got to benefit from that. And so I think all in all, um, really how it, how it went down is, first of all, I have to say that I'm sure being a long-term substitute has its own like can of worms, has its own challenges mm. that made my situation even more difficult. Yeah. And that is something that still, if I can say haunts me a little bit is knowing like what would it have been like if I had had my own classroom. Um, yeah. But I, at this point um, it's still very fresh. I have only been out of teaching for maybe a month and a half. Um, and it pains me to say this a little bit, but I know I made the right choice for me right now. Yeah. And I I can tell you why. So really what I was facing every day in the classroom was just unsafe. I was unsafe. Um, (laughs) I was unsafe personally. Um, like I just felt like I was like, I was, I don't know. I was being bombarded by cruelty, which sounds like so insane to say um but you know high schoolers and also just a stressful environment for teachers administration and students alike just creates a lot of that tension Mm. um but then also it just happened to be a particularly volatile year in the school i was working in um in terms of actual physical threats um and i know that that unfortunately has been on the rise um more and more teachers are saying that they have like felt unsafe in their work environment. Mm. Um, And that was totally true for me. Like I was getting to the point where it was really hard for me to walk in the building every morning. um, And I was dealing with a lot of anxiety and feelings of dread. um, And it was like starting to take a massive toll on my personal life. Um, And so that's when I knew I had to start having conversations with family and other teachers about what it might look like to take a hiatus for a while. and it was probably, it was, a, it was a long process. Of course, there's a lot of disillusionment and going to school for something and then like realizing like, hey, I don't know if I'm ready for this or I don't know if this is right and I need to take a break. 
Um, that was a really, really, uh, like kind of mind shattering process to go through. Um, and I didn't make the decision lightly. Like there were many tears shed. There was, and I, you know, I really do feel like the profession is unique in that way. I don't think it's as big of a deal to leave many jobs, but somehow Mm. teaching has this air about it where it's like, Oh, isn't that your calling? Um, and there's all these other people involved, these students that I cared deeply for. Um, so, uh, when I made the decision, it was really because I needed uh, to get a handle on just the anxiety and dread that I had associated with going to school every day. Um, and I needed to just like work on my, my health. (laughs) Um, and that's why I made the decision I did and I'm happy I did. But I also know that like my time with education is not anywhere near over. Um, I definitely still have that exact same heart and passion for it. Like we were talking about at the beginning. Um, and I know that I have a unique set of skills. Like I am talented in the classroom. If I can say that, um, I, and I, and I love it. And so that's like, Oh, even more gut wrenching that I, I had to take, you know, a leave of absence for a while. Um, but I know I'll be back. I just don't know necessarily in what capacity. And I would like to see maybe some changes in education in general, or at least in the <laughs> sure. that I'm working before I make that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can, I can absolutely attest to your talents in, in teaching. Um, I mean, we, I don't know if I've seen you in a formal classroom teaching, but I've been around you for years and I've seen you interact with students, even just through Upward Bound, uh, the program mm-hmm. that we worked in. And yes, I, it, can fully attest to the aspect that this is not not even remotely related to any level of incompetence or uh, this is not the career for you kind of situation. Like, like you are like one of those people that's like, yes, like should be in my mind, I guess, one of the greatest teachers that a student could have in high school of like, wow, Mrs. Wallace is like, man, passionate about education, passionate about students, passionate about, um, her content about English reading and writing. And so yeah, well, the crazy thing, that was totally the case in every single situation I was in with these long-term subbing assignments. Like hmm. I love my students. My students loved me. I was doing things that I was like cared about. I was teaching that I was passionate about. Like I managed to keep it together, you know, for the time being. Yeah. And I feel like I, crazy enough. I just, I feel like I was made an impact in even the short times that I was with these students. Um, and a lot of students were very, very sad to see me go, which isn't necessarily a testament of being good in the classroom. Like that could actually be the opposite. Um, (laughs) but it's a reminder to me that like, I can do this. Um, and that's kind of a mantra that kept me going for as long as I did. I know that I can do this. I know that not only do I have like an innate sense that I can do it, but I was trained well. Um, I think it just, it was so shocking to me how much I didn't know. And it was shocking to me how much of a toll it was taking on every other aspect of my life. And I felt like I was like losing a sense of myself. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. If I, if we can dig into this a little bit, if you don't mind. So it, from from what I'm hearing, it almost sounds like you were teaching at a really rough school. Is that the case? Was this like a really 
like your stereotypical inner city school, you know, there's like violence in the community and low income poverty situation. Is this, is this the environment that you were working in or what, what was that like? Yeah, I think that, um, that could definitely be a way to describe the school. I think it's more on the cusp of that than being actually that. Okay. If that makes sense. Um, definitely low income, uh, outskirts of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I think really though, the main challenge that the school is going through is just um, there's a crazy turnover of teacher. And so students feel as if they're not cared for in a consistent way. That was something I heard even before I started teaching there was the students will expect you to leave after a year. Um, and so that created and cre is still creating um, a really, really rough culture at the school. Uh, I think the, the school I worked at had a huge culture problem in that they felt like admin wasn't there for them. They felt like the teaching staff um, wouldn't stick around. Um, and they're unfortunately situated um, right next to a bunch of super, super successful and amazing districts, you would say, mm. um, while not being in those districts. So, like, for example, a school five minutes down the road from them is one of is in the district that I grew up in. And you can't even get a teaching job there unless you've been teaching for five years. And it's the pay is almost double. Um, it's one of the top five schools in Iowa. <laughs> and then here's the school wow. that's like in the shadow of another one and knows it. And the students make jokes about it. Um, so definitely a culture, a culture problem, which then, you know, created a whole host of other issues, like definitely a lot of uh, shelter in place scenarios, if we can just put it like that. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Wow. That's, that's, do you know, so I don't know, do you, has this always been a problem with this school as far as you know? Does this go back? Is this new? Is this COVID related? I think it's a problem that school has dealt with for a long time. Um, and I, th I think culture issues are usually pretty deep-seated. Like, I don't think this just sprang up out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, uh, unfortunately, I don't see a way that it's going to change very easily because the town is also landlocked. So it's, it's between Des Moines and a bunch of other suburbs, wealthy suburbs. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like people, I, I always called it the no man's land. Um, when I would teach the great Gatsby, I taught it twice in my time that I was at the school. The students were like, Oh my gosh, the Valley of ashes, like this no man's land between New York city and the wealthy suburbs. That's us. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it is. Interesting. <laughs> This industrial place where um, there's not a lot of love and care and attention given to, um, that is the school that I taught in. So weird parallel there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So um, did you – yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of something that um, – I wonder if – I don't know if we were in class together with Dr. Lockbaum at Truman, and she talked about how sometimes – just being able to be in the classroom longer than other teachers who cycle through makes an impact on students. I'm, I'm remembering a story and I don't know if it was her who said that was, was there for just longer than six months. And the students were like, Oh my gosh, you're still here. Like we have such a problem with student turnover uh, mm -hmm. or teacher turnover um, and, you know, a new teacher every three months and things along those lines that, you know, and, and the point of her bringing that up in, in class was that like, that affects students in a very almost visceral sort of way um, where 
you know, whether they take that personally, you know, like, wow, the teachers just really hate me as or us as students. And so they don't want to be around us or whether or just even just the the simple instability of mm. learning a new teacher and getting used to them. Because, you know, on the one hand, you know, any teacher should be able to teach the same class and you learn the same things. Like if we're in algebra two, anywhere in the country, ideally, we should all be walking away from this class knowing algebra two. Mm -hmm. But on the ground, you don't just substitute, you know, switch out any teacher and it's just an identical experience. I mean, every teacher has a different personality and you build a relationship with that teacher or maybe you don't, <laughs> you know, and every teacher has preferences and rules and policies that you kind of have to acclimate to and, and get used to. And I can only imagine what that would look like um, for a student to have to maybe adjust to a whole new person um, every three months or every six months um, in that type of situation. Yeah. Well I can speak to that personally because yeah. the students know how difficult it is to be in that building. They're not blind. Like they are totally, totally aware. And so therefore they are totally aware that it's very hard for a lot of teachers to be in that building. Um, the students have a front row seat to the problems that teachers deal with. And uh, they're not, they're not turning an eye to it like at all. Um, and so it was super unfortunate, but like, when I announced to my class that, like, after I was done with their long-term sub-assignment that I'd be leaving the school, um, I, I had, pers just so you know, I'd never talked about it before then. I hadn't ever complained about the school in front of them. Like, I was, I, I was kept all very close to my chest. I still had students come up to me personally afterwards and say that they were happy for me, um, that I was oh, able wow. to leave, which was wow. the crazy thing. Hmm. And I was like, you know, I, I didn't really engage with those conversations at all. Um, but it's a testament to me that they saw the struggle, even though I was trying so hard to maintain professionalism and not let that show. There's just no way to hide the struggle, I think, as a teacher a lot of the times. Wow. That's, that's, wow, that's kind of mind-blowing that the students are so aware of the difficulty of teaching in that school that, that they're almost unfazed by you leaving. Or, or yeah. unsurprised, if I could put it that way, of like, oh, yeah, yep, this kind of makes sense. And, yeah, you, you almost – like, they're almost encouraging you. Like, yeah, get out, save yourself kind of thing. Oh, yes. That is exactly what it is. I had students write me notes even um, saying, like, we're happy that you can move on from this, mm. uh, which is totally devastating to me. Like, <laughs> and I wanted to express to them how it's not a reflection of them. It is. It was not a reflection of my students – I did not leave because of my students. I don't think any, I would, I would venture to say that no teacher leaves because of their students, or at least very few. Um, it's, it's a combination of a lot of complex things yeah. coming together. Well, so. that's, yeah, well, and that's kind of what I wanted to get into. And one thing I was going to ask, because was it, I was going to ask, was it related to the students? Did you just have kids being crazy and disrespectful and disrupting class and, you know, maybe students being violent with each other? Like, was you're saying it wasn't the students, but I think that's one yeah. one question that comes to a lot of people's minds of like, wow, the kids must have been just crazy that you couldn't take it. Any, yeah. Like no discipline kind of thing. So I I am careful with my language to, to express that I do not blame students. Students are children. Um, and <laughs> sure. they, might, they might look like adults. They might try to act like adults. They are children. Okay. Um, and so I do not blame them. Um, at all, really, for a lot of the problems going on. Yes, there was a huge disrespect problem in our school. Um, 
But is that the student's fault or is that what I would really peg most of, if we're going to call it blame on, is our, our school had absolutely zero consistent discipline hmm. uh, and support from admin when it came to those very difficult student behaviors. Hmm. Like, yes, I was having super difficult student behaviors and I would love to just be like, oh, these darn kids, they're, they're why I had to get out of here. Yeah. But I know that if I had had more consistent help um, with monitoring these behaviors and trying to work out solutions to them, that it would have been a different story. Uh, it was much more of like, wow, I don't have the resources to deal with these five things happening in my classroom at once. Mm. And I know that if I try to use the resources that are there, um, that nothing is actually going to happen. Um, so there's a lot of like, gosh, I'm not going to send this student to the office cause nothing will happen down there or, uh, uh you know, things of that yeah, nature. That's, that's very interesting. Um, did you have very large classes? Um, they varied. I, I, okay. I would say, uh, they definitely, our, our school was definitely understaffed. I think it's actually funny. Almost every school in the country, I think is technically understaffed, but yes. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yes. Like in a sense, they all, all are pretty much understaffed. Um, but that's just kind of the new norm now, mm. unfortunately. Um, and so I do think the class sizes could have been smaller. Mine, I usually had 25 students in a class. Mm, okay. You say 25 and that sounds like standard normal. Like that's yeah. what I've had my whole, you know, short career is like 25, you know, give or take, you know, give or take four or five, you know, mm -hmm. I've had classes of 28, you know, and then, well, I happen to have, you know, a ti some tiny classes cause I, I'm at a smaller high school, but yeah, 25 sounds normal. But then you kind of think about like, wow, a ratio of, 25 16 year olds <laughs> to one adult who is trying to not only teach but emotionally connect with or at least just emotionally monitor just make sure i understand you know everyone's okay yeah. and not no one's crying you know um that kind of thing is yeah. kind of a high ratio um yes i mean it's crazy you can even have a class of 10 people and find it really difficult to just be there sure. be on yeah for every um so yeah, you have to you have to make some sacrifices when you have twenty five in the room that you wouldn't want to make as a teacher that's doing best quote unquote best practice. Yeah. Um, but there's just there's not enough time in the day. Mm -hmm. There's not enough of me in the room. Sure. Yeah. Not enough of you in the room. Yeah. That's that's a fair way of putting it. Yeah. So this is this is just interesting. So then, if I can kind of contrast this with with my experience, is that yeah. it, in my first year of teaching, so I taught in Sedalia and. On the one hand, Sedalia is an extremely interesting community. It's a tiny, not tiny, but it's a small rural community, maybe 20,000 people in the area. So not even in the city limits, the city limits would be smaller. But then if I were to add, you know, kind of people on the outskirts of town, like 20,000 people. So pretty small in the grand scheme mm -hmm. of cities in the United States. Um, and yet the, the racial diversity and even the economic diversity in that small town is pretty, pretty vast. Um, you've got, you know, you've got, you know, it's, it's the Midwest in the United States. So, you know, you've got a pretty large population of white students, but then a very significant percentage of black students, also Hispanic students. And, you know, in, in Kirksville where I am now, like there's, there's Hispanic, um, a Hispanic community here, but you know, and, and again, the stereotype of like, you've got your Mexican restaurants and, and things like that. But in Sedalia, you've got like entire neighborhoods or and like streets with 
not just restaurants, but like stores and little grocery stores that are completely like catered toward the Hispanic population there. And then on top of that, um, lots of Ukrainian and Russian immigrants who would have guessed. Mm -hmm. And, and so, um, you know, you talk about the cultural diversity in a small, relatively small area is, is pretty significant, I think, for, for a rural town in Missouri. Um, and then you've got all the way up, you know, to people that are lawyers and doctors that are doing extremely well, um, you know, sending kids to, to well-off colleges and things like that, all the way down to um, legitimate poverty, um, students that are probably not eating um, dinner every night kind of thing and you know i've had kids that are in, in that school that were in unstable family situations and and they would come into school and i could definitely tell that like those are daytime clothes but i could tell you slept in those clothes from the day before mm -hmm. and you did not get a change of clothes from you know from last night to today kind of thing you know yep. and so so I, i'm painting this picture to lead into the fact of like of course you're gonna have student behaviors that need to be addressed you know whether it's simple disrespect or kids are screaming at each other in the hallway or you know there is a fight in the lunchroom and and things like mm -hmm. that and so like um you know kids that don't want to be there kids that you know are just um you know are, are care dealing with trauma yeah. from their home life and so mm -hmm. in some cases i could say like i had some rough classes and and i like really had some some behaviors that i really had to learn how to manage as a teacher because holy cow if if i don't figure this out this whole class is going to go go up in flames metaphorically speaking <laughs> and some days it did <laughs> because it was my first year yeah. teaching and i was a terrible teacher because every teacher is kind of terrible their first year um at some level um <laughs> but what's interesting is that at that school i had amazing building administrators so it was a it was a pretty big school it was like 1200 kids um, so there's a principal and then there were four, four, three or four, uh, three, I'll just say three assistant principals. Okay. So I think it was a team of four of like the main guy and then like three, three people mm -hmm. under him. And like all of them were extremely supportive. If I had an issue, they had like, okay, Mr. Floyd, you know, you're new to teaching. Here's our detention policy. You send us a kid you know, for an office visit in the middle of class, we will keep them and talk with them and work with them. And we will not send them back to class so that if mm -hmm. you send them, you do not have to worry about them coming back and then trying to figure out, okay, you've been gone for 20 minutes and I don't know if you're really changing your mind. So like that kind yeah. of like, like I had that covering and then, you know, I, I had some rough days where I had several kids go to the office and like, then they would call and say like, Hey, it's okay. Like we're going to, I know it's been, it's been a rough day and you're handling it the best we can, but we're going to work with you. And like, you know, we know what's going on and we're talking to the parents. Like I had amazing support and, and I, yeah. That's amazing. I'm like, that is so comforting to know that that is happening out there. And I know what's happening out there in certain schools. And that is just really comforting here because not happening in the school I was in, <laughs> like no communication, no administrators intervening in a helpful way even with parents or anything like it was all just like eh, you're in charge of your own discipline yeah um you know we could be maybe a we could hold them for a while but like we're gonna release them back to you and it's gonna be your problem to deal with moving forward yeah uh, that was very much the attitude mm, yeah and I, I just the reason i'm going I'm, I'm telling this whole thing is just like i'm finding that and even on twitter you know just 
hearing from other teachers about what, you know, what's wrong, you know, what's wrong with education. You know, this has kind of been a, a popular, I don't know, thing to talk, you know, like since the eighties, you know, and this is kind of goes back to some things we learned in, in our master's program of like the, it's almost a fad to talk about what's wrong with education. Um, but at some level, like we are at a new level of like, there's something wrong with our school system right now. And, and like, what is causing it? You know, is it economics? Is it national policy? Is it state policy? Is it, you know, racist parents is, you know, like, what is the issue? Like, what is going on? And a common thread that I am, or a common factor that I am seeing from you, from my experience, and even from people just on the internet that I'm listening to and, and, and stuff is the building administration on whether or not the people in your building who are on paper there to be looking out for you, whether or not they are effectively doing that is, yes. is just something that I've keep coming back around to. Well, and culture is top down. So I am, I am totally of the mindset that that is a major, major factor. And this goes back to something that we had talked about a little bit previously, um, not on the podcast, but yeah. I think a good time now, um, Yes, there are national policies that can affect education, certainly. Um, but I think really when it comes down to schools, if you look at a school five minutes down the road from this one, why is it so different? Um, why is the situation completely different? Why are the teachers getting paid an incredibly different amount? Why are the average ACT scores so different? I really do think that the quote-unquote what's wrong with education conversation needs to be happening for local school districts mm. and even schools. Um, whether it be that administration side of things, which is a huge part of it, like you said, or whether it be a conversation about like, oh, property taxes or those kind of things. Like it is a school to school thing that I think is a lot more localized than people realize. Hmm. And it's super important to be active in your local school district and those elections and the school board. Like we, we can do a lot in terms of like specific targeted things in your community. Um, and I think that it, in the end makes a bigger difference than maybe those bigger sweeping changes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, if you if you get on the Internet, the discussion is on national policy and state policy of, you know, this state voted to do this. Oh, no, that's terrible. It's going to ruin schools or, you know, we've got this uh, secretary of education, you know, in, in Washington. And, oh, no, that's going to be terrible. And like, yes, those things affect it. But, man, I think the thing that is the primary primary thing that is affecting teachers is their I mean, I'm just repeating what you're saying, the local the local condition of their district. And so yeah. um, this this also ties into um, some things that I've looked into just about leadership in general. Um, I'm a big fan of a guy named Simon Sinek, who is, I mean, he has, I think he has a, actually, I think he has a really popular TED talk where he talks about finding your why, like, why does your business do what it does and like how to be successful in marketing? He's fundamentally a business guy and talks about leadership a lot, but he has this talk and a book, actually, I haven't read the book, but I've listened to his, his talk um, called why eat leaders eat last, why leaders eat last. And, yep. and yeah, the premise of the book is that the job of a leader is not to ensure that their organization or company or business or school performs well. Mm -hmm. 
which sounds counterintuitive to, I think, a lot of people's mindset. If I am the manager of a business or the CEO, my job is, my primary job is not to make sure we are making money and being profitable. Simon Sinek argues that your job is to take care of the people around you and the people under you. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I were to put this into a school context, the principal's job is not to make sure that all the students are getting A pluses because mm -hmm. he's not the one teaching everyone. His job is mm -hmm. to take care of all the teachers. Yes. That's his primary job. Mm -hmm. If you are the leader in a building, and again, whether that's a school or a, or a business, your job is to take care of the people around you and the people under you. Are they? Do they feel safe? Do they feel like they can come to you for advice or if they have an issue? Um, if they if they make a mistake, are they afraid of being fired or are you going to come around and talk to them and work with them and ensure that like, okay, you made a mistake, like, let's talk about that. Let's grow from that, you know, a safe learning environment, even for the teachers, um, things along those lines, yeah. you know, and you know, if a teacher is having issues with a student or maybe a parent, you know, come, you know, emails a nasty email, like, is the principal going to step in and be helpful in that situation? Or is the principal going to be absent from that situation? Or, you know, heaven forbid, make it worse. <laughs> that type yeah. of thing. Because if, and, and just the idea behind this leadership principle is that if, if the, the head leader is taking care of the next tier down, it's then that, the teachers or maybe, you know, in a business, the people who are interacting with the customers, if they are taken care of, then they will take care of the clients. And even, yes. even in education, we, a lot of times we refer to our students as clients, you know, and that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of a fancy term of like, my, my clientele is different than your clientele. And like, that's just a fancy yes. way of saying like, I teach different kind of kids than you teach, you know, <laughs> but like, we, we kind of use that, that terminology of clients and it is not the building's leadership job to take care of the clients. It is the people who are daily interacting with the clients to take care of the clients. Yep. But if you want to take care of the clients, you have to take care of the people who are taking care of the clients. And mm -hmm. so, um, and I love that principle. Yeah. I think it applies maybe even better in a school than in a business sure. because we're in the business of people and, Everyone is coming in there with baggage of different types. Yeah. Uh, and if you have, um, like, and even in the school that I was working in, yeah, my admin was not great, but I leaned on my coworkers. Mm, yeah. In incredible ways. And I think there's a lot of really cool teacher, teacher relationships that keep people going that are mm. like making huge positive differences in schools, just the ways, and I, I don't know, uh, I've worked in the business world for, you know, a few weeks now, and it's <laughs> not the same way. Like, yeah, I have some fun talks with coworkers, but it's different than, like, when I was teaching, and I was, like, leaning on my coworkers, like, family. Um, and so I think in a school, that's even more important to have a culture, not of fear, of, like, you know, Am I going to get found out? Like, what is gonna, what is this going to cause? Is anyone going to help me? But, oh, I'm being cared for. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the, there's the top down aspect to, to it. And then there's also the side to side lateral leadership of like, are we looking out for people that are next to us? And again, something mm -hmm. that Simon Sinek says in, in his talk is like, if you want to be a leader, the way you start is just by taking care of the people that are next to you. If you are taking mm -hmm. care of people, you are leading by his definition. Um, yeah. And and I think young teachers like like us especially mm -hmm. need that because teaching is such a difficult thing. And I guess kind of tying it back all the way to what you were talking about, you know, 
the theory of education versus actually like working in the classroom. Like the only mm -hmm. way you get good at teaching, I think fundamentally is by doing it. Yep. Yes, you need to go to school and like have a degree and like, yes, you need to learn the textbook knowledge of teaching. And yes, you need to know your psychology. So yes, there is textbook stuff you need to learn, but you will not be a good teacher until you start teaching and figure that out. Yes. And so because of that aspect, if you want new teachers, you just need to take people who have not taught and just throw them in the classroom and let them learn to swim as they're swimming. Um, yep. And the only way, unfortunately. It's the, yeah, if, if there was a way to perfectly prepare a teacher for the classroom before they started teaching, I think that would be great. It's like, okay, we're going to have you, we're going to, I don't know, we're going to like teach you all the things you need to know, all the psychological theories, all the emotional intelligence you need, relationship building skills, how to make the perfect tests, you know, like, and then we're just going to plug you in. It's going to work perfect. Like if we could do that, that would be awesome. And then, I don't know, maybe young teachers would le would need less oversight and resources and support. Um but unfortunately, but just that's just not, not how it works. And so I think inherent to education is the need for support, especially for young teachers. And so, man, I can only imagine is going in as a young teacher, being vulnerable, being, um, I don't know, not as proficient or masterful in the art of teaching, and then not having an environment where you're supported and reassured and looked after. Um, I don't know if I would stay like I would probably do exactly what you did um, yeah. almost against your own against your own dreams and desires going a direction that is just honestly better for you despite it not being the direction you wanted to go in the first place yeah yep it cannot be overlooked the impact of support from fellow teachers and just the people the people in the building hmm. yep yeah yeah I think I think this is one reason why I think I'm passionate about administration, even educational administration. I can see myself maybe wanting to be a principal eventually. Um, I love teaching, so I want to do that for a few decades first. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's there's definitely something to be said for the building administration um, and, and how they do that. And, th and I, I'm not in Sedalia anymore, but um, thankfully I have amazing building administration still and amazing coworkers still, which is which is why I'm still able to do what I do. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. I don't think I would survive. Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious. Yeah. How this is. Um, it's just interesting how you and I are talking about the local factors, you know, within a certain building. And yet nationally, there seems to be a problem. Like, it's not like there, yeah. it's not like a speckled issue per se of like, oh, there's just a few bad schools in our country, but it's like, seems to be a wide, widespread type of issue. And so, um, I think that's something I'm still trying to unpack and figure out what I think about it because on the one hand it's very localized and on the other hand well it's also ubiquitous and so yes how do you reconcile those two those I two think things? it can be the it can be both at the same time um, like without a doubt I'm sure that, I'm sure that that's what it is uh, I also just think there is so many different people in the United States looking to get different things out of education. Hmm. And so there's, if we're going back to the business model, there's just a, an obvious disconnect between the product being offered and what people actually want. And, hmm, okay. um, so <laughs> I mean, there's, there's just no way to perfectly address that problem. Um, you're going to have a bunch of kids in your class in the same exact class who are 
only there till they're 16 and can drop out or whatever the rule in your state is. Yeah. And there's people there that are planning on going on getting their PhD. Um, and so, you know, when you've got your clientele all seeking different things from the same institution, um, there's, there's obvious problems associated with that. And, um, but that's also the beauty of public education. I'm so like, I'm so just inspired by the fact that the system even exists. Um, because like it, it just, it, it still is heartwarming and amazing to me, even though there are so many inherent problems to it that like, you know, that your child is going to have access to public education. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I think is something we can't, you know, take for granted. Um, despite, you know, despite all of the, all of the inherent issues that come up with it, it, it's still, um, it's still amazing that it even exists. And I, I do have to take a step back and remind myself of that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you just opened two big topics that, that I've been thinking about that I'd, I'd love to kind of get into of like, I have this phrase that I, that I kind of play through my head that just kind of baffles me still. And it, this phrase is the affluence of public education. And what, <laughs> I, what I mean by that is like, just what you were saying, if we step back and go, whoa, 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 hold on. You're telling me that in our culture right now, we have institutions where we have giant buildings that have chemistry labs and whiteboards and smart boards and parking and a football stadium and tennis courts and some have an indoor pool and there's a weight room and I can send my kid there for free <laughs> and for seven, eight hours a day, longer if they play sports or are involved with a, you know, so I can send them there all day and they will be, they will have the opportunity to be trained not by just adults who do this as a volunteer kind of thing like as a side thing they will be have the opportunity to be trained by adults who have literal bachelor's and master's degrees in certain content areas of education where they can learn about english and history and chemistry and not only learn about chemistry but we have like a whole freaking chemical closet worth tens of thousands of dollars where you can like interact with chemicals like i will give you chemicals that you get to do an experiment and will this make you know like further your career in the future i don't know but like here is some hydrochloric acid and some zinc like let's like do an experiment and stuff you know it's just like there is so it's amazing and then like oh also you have a kid who has dyslexia fear not like these trained Mm. professionals understand how your brain works and what you need and are prepared to deliver the content like we will help you learn math and reading even though you have this disability and i am trained to help bridge that gap for you and you don't have to worry about that of like oh you have emotional trauma i have been trained in psychology and have an understanding of trauma to where like i can recognize that and um can adjust my teaching so that you can succeed in this class like holy cow Like how many humans, like if we just think of all the humans that have lived on planet earth, Mm -hmm. how many humans have had that opportunity to go to any school? And we take it for granted and we complain about, you know, every little thing. Um, And it's, it's good to poke holes in it and it's good to try to make it better. Um, But I do think that to even engage in the process and even like consider working in the process, you have to have like, that as your foundation like wow what an amazing resource 
look at the ways that I could impact kids just by nature of us living in the same zip code. Like, I love that. Um, and it, it, yeah, it makes me excited. Yeah. I mean, I could have been some kid in 13th century Mongolia who just grows up and it's like, no, we just like, we roam and we, you know, <laughs> follow the, I don't, I don't know what 13th century Mongolia looks like, but I don't think they were, <laughs> you know, learning about chemistry and calculus and astronomy and space and stuff. And not to say that those people didn't have fulfilling lives, you know, not to mm -hmm. say that, but, but it just, there's opportunity, there's opportunity mm -hmm. and you can go on so many different paths and there's so much less friction to go down those paths than there would be for so many other people. Um, yes. You know, and, and I went to a different time and place, but maybe just a different place at the same time. You know, I, I could be, you know, I could I could be in North Korea right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like they certainly do not. I mean, they don't they barely have food. You know, it's just like let alone the educational opportunities we have. Like, wow, what an amazing uh, blessing that this is. Um, well, yeah. Like road from that for me. And the thing that's just like blaring in my head right now is like how amazing that we have this resource. Why are we not putting more money into it? Hmm. It's literally our children. Like, it's funny how, how, you know, sometimes, you know, you got your helicopter crazy parents. Um, and like, it's their child. Their child is their whole world. They're maybe living vicariously through their child. <laughs> and yeah. yet uh, there's some of the same people who don't support, you know, more money being in the school system and more money being given to teachers. Like, Oh, that is just so crazy to me that as a country, we can all at once be like, we have to protect our children and also be like spending less money on education than ever. Um, and so I'm like, wow, we have this amazing, like public education got started in this country. It's, it's still stumbling along kind yeah. of, <laughs> yeah, Let's keep it going. Let's invest in it further. There's, I mean, I think that, that just, that just was going through my mind that whole time of it just doesn't seem it it's, creates a lot of cognitive dissonance to me to think that we care so much about our children, of course, and yet still education is so underfunded. And the people who are who have gone and got their bachelor's degrees, their master's degrees, and are there watching your children eight hours a day and trying to not only just watch them but give them amazing educational opportunities to advance themselves. We're not going to support those people. Like, <laughs> that seems crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, and and that's just kind of yeah. That's where that that word affluence of public education. In my mind, it's like it takes so much money and resources to go into that system. It's like you don't have that unless you have an affluent nation. And I'm I'm using affluent in global terms. You know, or in, you know, in the history of all humankind, like we are very rich as a as a society and as a culture compared to other times in history and other locations in history like wow we have we have the the resources and the economics and the manpower and the desire and the vision to even have the system exist in the first place um yes yeah and but then so then yeah you you bring up the question of like why are we not investing more um mm -hmm. if i can play devil's advocate to that sometimes i think like is all of this necessary you know mm -hmm. it's like is like, what is the purpose of all this then? Because so then going back to something you mentioned earlier, this, so this is another area that I, that I think about is like, well, what is the purpose of all this? Like, uh -huh. yes, you have the opportunity to go learn physics and, you know, about Shakespeare and 
poetry and I don't know, Russian Soviet Union history. Like you can learn all of those things. And then if you want to go and make that your career, like, like that's great. But like, I don't know. What if you just want to farm? Like I have students at the school who were in chemistry, um, or who have had, who have been in chemistry in, in my last three years and they're, and they drop out halfway through. Cause they're like, this is really hard. And honestly, I don't want to use this. I, I want to go farm because I love farming and like, I want to do that. And I take a step back and I go more power to you. Like just because I'm a chemistry teacher does not mean again, that everyone needs to be a chemist. And like, I want you to be a good, a good farmer. Please go do that. Don't waste your time trying to learn <laughs> the difference between soluble and insoluble compounds that, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. Like you don't need that. Like go do your thing. And like, may, I don't know. And is it, is it personally and, and cognitively enriching to dig into poetry and, and, and like learn from that and like maybe dig into your own self-expression? Oh, Yes. But I don't know, do we cram everyone through that funnel as well? Like, you know, every human, you know, needs to like be a an expert in poetry or like have the opportunity. It's like, well, I don't know, maybe not. Like, are we mm -hmm. trying are we trying to do too much for everybody? Yeah, that's like really Is it too one size fits all maybe? Yeah, the the thing that I keep coming back to though is like what about the students that didn't even know about it didn't even know about an option and we get to be the people that show them. Hmm. Like students that grew up in a farming community and a farming family and that's what they want to do but what about the tons of students that have no direction for their life and like how much more should we be investing in them to show them what their lives could look like hmm. or students like going back to upper bound students that think that they have nothing ahead of them hmm. you know that they look at the, their future and it's just bleak um and like school is their way out hmm. um and so that's i think that is like the crux of it for me um when i talk about the investment education and the why it's what paths forward can it give to students that feel like they don't have paths forward like sure you're gonna get what you want out of the school system if you are like i knew i was going to college after school so i interacted with my educational experience in a particular way if i knew i was going to farm Maybe I would interact with it differently, like you were saying, but I think the majority of students maybe are in a different category, which is, I have no idea, and I'm not even thinking about it because I'm a teenager, but <laughs> hopefully being here, I can start thinking about it, and I can have adults who care about me in my life that are pointing me in different directions, um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like that take on it. Um, one thing I heard from another teacher that I really liked is that um, on the one hand, we can't, uh, I'm trying to make sure I articulate this accurately, is that like, I, I can't, I don't teach chemistry because I believe that all students who will have me in class need that like literal knowledge. Like you need to know the difference between an anion and a cation. Like you need to know mm -hmm. of that about atoms. You know, it's like, it's not necessarily that why they're there, but then another way that it was put from another teacher is that like, who am I to say who gets to have that opportunity and who doesn't? Yeah. Like yeah. It, when you, when you frame it in terms of opportunity and choice, that mm -hmm. makes so much more sense to me in saying like, okay, welcome to this high school. 
here are all these wonderful options that you can choose from and you based on who you are and what you're interested in can go down that path and maybe yes as a school we will force you into some classes that you didn't necessarily choose just to kind of open up you know broaden your horizons a little bit because we all have to try different things and maybe do something new that we haven't done before but um here you know here is the palette here is the buffet of things you can choose from here it is here it is mm -hmm. you know young student who who is now in high school like take take your pick and get out of it what you want as opposed to well you really just you know you really need to know about you know this well, all of these uh, uh, areas because it's going to help with your job because that's such like that's so not true like all the stuff you learn yeah. in high school is not because it's going to help you with your job like it, it's just not well and i will remind both of us again we're talking about children kids who don't know what they need a lot of the times and don't know what's best for them and so with all of our knowledge our professional knowledge we're trying to provide them with what they need and so, yeah, we, we might say, there, like, yeah, maybe every student does not need to know this particular chemical knowledge or whatever. But also, we, they don't know what they need either. Like, we're the, we're the professionals who are trying to provide it to them. Um, and so I, I like that side of it, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad you said that because that's actually that's my go to um kind of conversation because inevitably you're going to have some get Mr. Floyd when are we ever going to use this like why do I need to know this um and like usually the first thing out of my mouth is probably never <laughs> I just like I'm not gonna like try to bs you on this like I'm just gonna be like yep nope that, probably never but but then I come around if if it's a con conversation that they're willing to have I'll be like well what are you going to do with your career and they'll be like well not this I'm like how do you know and they're like well I'm not I'm like do you really know that? Do you really know what career and what you're going to, what your life is going to look like? Like, you know, like I didn't, I didn't even know what my life was going to look like. You know, I'm still only 26 and my life has taken directions that I did not foresee that I did not plan on. And I mean, you Carly of all people <laughs> clearly with your very oh, career yeah. has taken directions and, and turns that you did not foresee. So, you know, yes. Yeah, exactly. To your point of like, yes, we should, pursue what we're interested in and and dig into those things but yes we don't always even know what is interesting to us if i've never heard of you know i don't know a sonnet maybe that's mm -hmm. something that's going to blow my mind yeah but i need to go to school and have a teacher show that to me to even realize that that's even an option you know yes and so yeah that's, yeah. that's articulated hmm. yeah so it's it's weird yeah and then so yeah, just get back to this idea of like the public education system is expected to do so much. And I feel like what our culture expects from public education is ever increasing. Of oh, yeah. I love talking about that, by the way. Just like, <laughs> like you're like, it's normal to us now that your kid is screened for hearing and vision things at school. Yeah. And the school to maybe be your child's first exposure to sexual education and maybe supposed to be their first exposure to talking about things like drugs. Yeah. Um, and also now, you, you know, like it's crazy the different interdisciplinary things that a public school is now expected to provide. Um, that at one time it was probably not. Um, and then you're right, that bucket just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And like now school can be a student's entire life. Like 
all of their extracurricular activities, yeah. whether they be academic or athletic related, um, like before and after school programs, like, and this is all happening in the wheelhouse of public education. Yeah. Um, it's pretty mind blowing when you take a step back. Yeah. And even, even, even down to like, we will serve your student breakfast and lunch if they need it. You know, yep. yeah. So it's like, yeah, not only do we have all these academic resources, but yeah. And there's a nurse on staff and we have like a whole kitchen with people serving food. And yes, I will admit that sometimes school lunches are not the most nutritious and not the most uh, varied, but it's, a, but it's yeah. there. Like you have something to eat. Um, and, and specifically on the issue of food, like I think that's so important because there is a lot of food insecurity, especially in rural areas. Um, and so that is, that's meeting a community need more than just, that's not just necessarily a bonus of like, oh, and also on top of that, we're going to throw in some food. It's like eh, a lot of students are showing up to school hungry and literally don't have other, any other options. And so I yeah. think, I think that's really great, but. But yeah, and then so the I th yeah, I think some of the the latest things that have been kind of coming through is is talking about trauma of like now a lot of teachers are being educated on what do trauma -informed. yeah trauma informed practice that's that's the that's the language right there and so like what do symptoms of trauma look like how does that affect uh, a child's uh, psychological development how does that affect their learning ability how does that affect their ability to work with their classmates and things like that and now a teacher also is educated in the ability to recognize those things and maybe not diagnose like a, like a true prof like professional in mental health would be able to but recognize and accommodate and modify their practice in order to to meet that student's needs as well yes I also think um, a, a misconception that people outside looking in on the education world have is that, oh, teachers don't want all that extra responsibility and they're lazy and they're complaining. Sure. That is not the case. Every no. teacher I've ever interacted with is like, oh my gosh, I can be more trauma informed and help students that have hard home lives. Yes. Teach me about it. I want to do that. Yeah. Problem is not that there's not an interest and a passion for having all of these extra things going on in the public education system it's that we don't have the resources for it <laughs> yeah. um, and it's much. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't know a teacher who's ever complained about those extra things. It's just that, well, wow, I'm now being asked to do a lot more than I maybe expected with my job description. And I don't really know that I'm being compensated adequately or trained properly, um, I think is usually what the problem actually is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you just, yeah, think about that from a human level of like, okay, I'm going to be a human that is going to try to help, help these students academically. I'm going to emotionally invest in them um, and get to know them personally. It's like just that in of itself is a huge weight to carry just as an individual. Oh, and, and for a hundred kids, by the way, because yes, there's 25 kids in this class, but I have six classes, you know? Yes. And, yes. and if I have full classes, you know, that's 150 kids right there. And, you know, I don't have that many students because not all of my classes are 25 kids, but it's like, that is a lot to carry. And then on top, you know, and then just all of the other stuff that goes into teaching as well. It's like, how much more do teachers need to be supported by their building administration? How much more do they need to be supported by parents um, uh, yeah. looking out for them? Because teachers are almost almost to their own detriment teachers are taking on responsibility because they want to help they are passionate yes. about serving their communities and serving serving their students and 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 the families that those students come from um 
but you can only pile so much stuff on top of one person before they just start to buckle. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. But yeah, lots, uh, lots of things that go into it. Yeah. And then I guess there's the whole conversation about teacher salaries as well, <laughs> which is an interesting can of worms to get into. Um, I, I pulled out, I pulled out my handy dandy, uh, foundations of education textbook. Um, look at you coming prepared. Yeah. Just cause I was, cause, so this is another topic. Um, sorry, we're just going for everything right now. We're just, we're going to fix all of education on this, on this sh conversation right here. Um, yeah. <laughs> one big, yeah, big conversation is like teachers are underpaid and, and, and we need to increase, you know, federal funding and like, you know, we need to put more into schools and states need to increase, you know, their funding and this and that. And, and one thing I, I have to remind myself is, okay, where does the funding for education actually come from? Mm -hmm. Like we have this huge facility, these buildings and all of these resources, where is this coming from? And like, yes, it's public education, so it's paid by taxes, but if you dig into it, it's actually coming from local taxes, like local yep. property taxes. Um, and I, yep. I pulled out that book. There's the just the chapter that's talking about the economics of education. Roughly speaking, 45% of what's paying for the school is coming from your community. Yep. That's how the teachers yep. are getting paid is by the local, yep. the local property taxes in that school district. Another 45%, yeah, <laughs> another 45% might come from the state and then the remaining 10% is the federal level. Yep. Yeah. Wow, that break right there just makes it like glaringly obvious like some issues there. Like, oh, I wonder why this school outperforms this school. Well, take a drive through one of the neighborhoods. Yeah. That will tell all you need to know. Exactly. Period. Yep. Yeah, and, and if I want to impact that or make a change instead of going to you know the secretary of education who's in washington and trying to make change there it's like no you need to figure out how you can increase revenue in your community like it's right around you like getting creative yep. about that and and maybe that's and maybe that economic model is uh needs to be changed and maybe you know maybe instead of it being so dependent on the local community maybe it needs to be um, I don't know, maybe the state needs to take up more of the chunk and maybe it needs to be more equally distributed um, across the state as opposed to just communities paying yeah. for their schools. But but that's just where we are now. And so if teachers are underpaid and teachers need to be paid more, then it's like the way that's going to get fixed is is in local solutions or, or state solutions. But it's certainly not the federal level. Yeah. And it's also just like, so in the situation that I was in, like, I think I already mentioned this, but so stark, um, like you can get paid double what you were paid at wow. my school by driving five minutes down the road. Mm. Um, and so of course that is like money makes the world go around. Like as I, I don't really want to be that cynical about it, but like it is important. It is, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's it's almost more just a realistic statement than a cynical statement in a lot yeah. of ways because that's just true. You yeah. Could, yeah, you could have all the heart in the world, all the passion in the world, but like if you are feeling valued just in what you were paid, that is almost like the value of that can't even really be spoken. It's just so inherent to it. Um, and so of course I, I don't blame any teachers for leaving the school that I was at to go work 
at a school district that's going to pay them a lot more. Like, that is how it works. Um, and so, you know, just having those conversations about, like, how much do we really value education mm-hmm. and what this teacher does truly? Um, right now, my husband and I are trying to buy a house. Yeah. And the housing market is really bad right now. And we're having to have a lot of interesting conversations about how much do we actually think this is worth? And we're pretty bad at it because we're first-time home buyers <laughs> in a market. But I think about that when it comes to teaching, too, because I am just, you know, I, I won't give exact numbers, but I'm making a lot more than I was teaching, doing a job that I actually value a lot less. Hmm. I'm in the business sector. I don't think that what I do is, like, just inherently valuable in the way that teaching is. I think I still can do some pretty cool things in my job and I, you know, can have some cool relationships and, you know, but am I like interacting with hundreds of kids and helping them in their lives and getting to just have those amazing relationships? No. And yet the job I'm doing now is valued in an economic sense a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And woof, does that keep me up at night? Like <laughs> so bothersome um, that this pretty casual business job that, could go by unannounced is technically valued a lot more than the visible nature of being a teacher of the children in our community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think also taking a step back, like there is something to be said about the nature of an institution and how it generates revenue because, you know, if you're, if you're in the tech industry right now, like there, that is just a highly valuable part of our economy. And so, um, you know, if I'm making products that people will buy and pay a lot for, you know, if I'm selling smartphones, you know, like those are very valuable, that's a very valuable commodity right now. And so like that will sell. And then just by nature of people buying things from me and me making money, like I can have high salaries for my workers because, um, because we're making money. In education, you don't really make money, uh, especially if it's free tuition. Um, yeah. And so, and so that's also, I think, one of the challenges to that particular area. Um, I think uh, Dr. Lockbaum at Truman, you know, just referred to it as like when you're in a public service, you just have to accept that the institution as a whole does not generate profit. Like it's just not how it works. And if you want, if you, and she, and interesting thing she said is that if you want to generate profit, you then have to decrease the scope of clients that you can serve. Yep. And that inherently goes against the heart behind the free and appropriate public education. Right. And so you're at a standstill already. Um, so then it's like, ah, do we just accept it? It's like, oh, because it's for everyone, it's going to be it's going to be offered at a lower quality and we're not going to be able to pay teachers as much. And there's just you're never going to have enough resources. Or do we start to invest in education as much as we do in other things in this country? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, just like uh, I think it's kind of a um, a moral dilemma almost. And it's like I said, that weird cognitive dissonance of like, it's our kids. We care a heck of a lot about our children. And we know that they're the future of our society. Um, it's just maybe hard to make that like direct line to maybe the people that teach our kids need to make more. Um, so we can attract the best people to the profession and we can have, have levity um, 
and keeping them there because they know that they're valued hmm. in a way that matters a, a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, we've been going for like 90 minutes now. This has been good. I enjoy these conversations. <laughs> Is your phone doing okay? You mentioned earlier that uh, you're, you're... Ooh, we're, get, we're getting low. This might be a natural cutoff, maybe within the next five minutes to okay, be safe. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I realize you're uh, in a part of your home that has better audio, but uh, maybe doesn't have a plug. And so I just want to be mindful of that. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, I think we can wind down from there. I think there's a lot more we could get into and talk about, but I think we'll just have to have you on again and continue the conversation in, in upper, other episodes. Yeah. But this has been super cool. This is like what I envisioned our conversations together being like, and, and I hope that there can be more conversations on this podcast. And I, I know that there are a lot of conversations happening just in our culture now about education. I'm, I'm seeing like other teacher related podcasts even pop up um, where people are telling their stories. There's a lot of teachers jumping onto YouTube and Instagram telling their stories. There's a lot of talk on Twitter <laughs> of, of, of what's going on. And so it's cool that, um, that we're talking about it. It's unfortunate. I think that it's kind of in a crisis kind of tone of like, Oh my gosh, education, yeah. what's going wrong. And you know, there's a lot of anger and people pointing fingers and things along those lines. But I think fundamentally, if we're talking about it, that's better better than nothing and so well and i like that we a broad overview of a lot of different topics in this first, this first conversation because now we can maybe pick it apart and dive into things more specifically or sure. you know i still talk about upper bound and like yeah well that place that education is working um <laughs> yes it's not that technically in a public school but like that program is amazing yeah. and would love to talk about it, the things that it's doing right yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would love to talk about that as well. Um, so I guess we'll just have to do it again. But man, it's been really good to, to have you on and uh, really appreciate your thoughts and sharing your experiences and and uh, everything you've contributed. Yes, thank you for having me. All right, great. Well, we will uh, tune in next time and uh, see you later. Say yeah, yeah, yeah.